Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Matt Ramazzi. Matt is a longtime entrepreneur who has started, bought, and sold or brokered businesses for the last 22 years. He has uh, owned online businesses, a restaurant, a business brokerage, and now for the last 10 years, a bookkeeping accounting firm. During his time, he's worked with thousands of small business owners, optimizing their business and achieving successful exit. Man, thank you for being on the show. Sorry, I messed up here. We practiced that name thing beforehand, too. We did, but it's a hard name. I get it. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, people get skeleton you know, skeleton all the time wrong. They're like, hey, is it skeleton or skeleton? I was like, call me whatever you want to, Matt. Uh, I don't get offended. So. I like I like to start off with the origin story. I like to joke around and say, man, you were born and now you're here. Kind of how did you end up on my show? Could you fill out the gap in between? So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's something, you know, I've wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was a little kid. Right? I always was the kid was, that was imagining, oh, I could start a T-shirt business. I could start a, you know, delivery business. I did. I, the first job I ever had was doing a paper route. And that was, you know, I had to go door to door and collect. And if I didn't collect, I didn't get paid. So even there, I was kind of running my own business. And it was something I always wanted to get into. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was, you know, like most entrepreneurs, right? There was a certain amount of fear. What if I fail? If I burn through a lot of money and it's going to be embarrassing and whatever. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went to college, still didn't know what I wanted to do, got into restaurant management. And finally, I said, look, it's now or never. You know, I'm not getting any younger. Even though I was only in my 20s, I could already see like I could fall into this pattern, do this for 40 years, retire and live with regret. Right. I, I didn't want to do that. So still not knowing what I wanted to do. I went to the MBA program here in San Diego and they had an entrepreneurship track. And I thought, man, this is where I'm going to figure stuff out. Went to school, made a ton of great contacts, you know, learned a lot about writing business plans and financials and all that kind of stuff. But by the time I got out, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took a job uh, at a company that was doing consulting for small businesses. And that's, this was right at the dot-com boom bust time, right at 2000. Um, and you know, that company had taken the company I worked for, took some financial backing and it didn't work out and I got laid off and I thought, well, you know, I can, I know how to do this consulting thing. I've been doing it for six months. Maybe I could just do consulting on my own until I go get another real job. Right. And that was in 2000. And that's the last time I took a paycheck from anybody but myself. I got hooked on the idea of being my own boss. I'd always wanted to do it, but now I finally had sort of a pathway. So I started doing consulting. And then I got, you know, this was the height of online businesses. So I started taking what I knew as a consultant, as a service charged by the hour of project basis. And I said, how can I turn this into a product? I created some products, sold them online. And the very first sale, I was so excited. I was like 89 bucks. Somebody bought my, you know, little software PDF book. I was like, oh my God, you're like, it's true. You can make money while you sleep. Oh my God, this is so exciting. So I, I grew that business. And then I thought, you know, I should hedge myself. Right. And what, what else can I buy? Right. The online business, you, you see them come and go. You know, Google would do an algorithm update. All of a sudden you were on page one, number one. And now all of a sudden you're page three. That's like being in Antarctica. Right. Nobody will ever find you. Right. <laughs> they joke about if you want to bury a dead body, bury it on page three of Google results. No one will ever, ever see it. 
So I thought, you know, what could I do? So I started looking around for a business to buy that I could run in parallel with my online stuff. And I came across this catering business, rest, catering restaurant for sale. And I've been in the restaurant business. I've been a restaurant manager. I know this business, the price seemed right. The brand was good, but the operators that were currently running it just were not smart operators. I, I learned early on that management is everything, right? Good managers will run a business well and bad management will run the same business into the ground. And it's all about that piece. So I went ahead, I got an SBA loan, I crossed my fingers, I bought the business. And then for the next month, I wake up every month, every you know, two in the morning going, oh my God, I just signed this giant loan and how am I gonna pay this? If this thing doesn't work, I'm ruined. But got through that, got it up on back on track, um, grew the revenue double, um, grew the profits by 3x because they were not running things very efficiently. And then I decided, you know, as much as this business was doing well, it was taking too much of my time and too much of my mental energy. So I decided, let me see if I can sell it. And I looked at broker options and I thought, no, you know, let me try and sell this thing myself. Let me see how that goes. And was able to successfully sell it, had a very nice exit, paid off that SBA loan so I could sleep again at night, <laughs> had a nice war chest set aside. And I thought, okay, I like this acquisition game. What, you know, where do I go from here? And I thought, ah, light bulb. What I could do is I could be a business broker and then I'll get first look at all these deals and I'll buy my next deal before anyone else even knows it's on the market. So I got my real estate broker's license, which you need in California to broker businesses and started looking at deals and selling deals. And I ended up selling 36 businesses over the next four years. Never found one I wanted though. I, every, everyone had something about, I'm like, I don't like this, so I'll sell this. I don't like this one, so I'll sell it. Um, and it was a great experience. And I got to know buyer mentality very well, seller mentality, all the ins and outs of the deal-making stuff. And the one thing that kept jumping out to me was, you know, every time I talk to these buyers or, or sellers rather, potential sellers, the number one thing is, right, I want to value the business, but it's really tough because their books are a mess. They've got all kinds of wrong stuff in there. They're six months out of date. They were done by the CPA for tax purposes and they, you know, they minimized the amount that they're showing as profit to minimize taxes, but it's not a good reflection of how the business is really running, but a buyer is going to look at this and go, well, I'm not going to pay you a premium for something that's losing money. So I realized there's a huge need for good small business bookkeeping and accounting service that could be, you know, it would get done every month. It would get done accurately. It would get done at a flat rate instead of hourly pricing, which you never know from one month to the next. Well, how come last month was, you know, 12 hours and this month is 24 hours. It's the same business. Well, the bookkeeper needed more money. I, I don't know why. Right? <laughs> so I was going to offer quality service, flat rate pricing, you know, accurate every month bookkeeping. And that just took off. I mean, I started out of a spare bedroom uh, back in 2012, just, just as a, you know, like every entrepreneur, I'll see if this works, right? I'll give it a few months, see if it works. I'll turn it off if it doesn't. And here we are 10 years later, 55 employees, over a thousand clients, you know, it's been a phenomenal success and, and a lot of fun along the way. And now we've got clients all the time who talk to me about, Hey, I'm thinking about selling my business. And I go, great. I already know your books are very clean and ready to go. So I can just tell you about some of the other parts of the exit process, but um, it's so much easier to sell a business and get top dollar for it. When all the accounting is done properly and the books are in good shape and they're up to date and current and accurate, and, you know, that's just something I've, I've learned over all the years of business brokering and then being involved in this. 
to have a successful exit, that is a key, key piece. I get it. You know, it's interesting. We had a, a recent show. I think it's actually going live this week. Uh, Patch Baker. Uh, Patch is a serial entrepreneur. I think he actually currently owns like 44 businesses. He's a coach and mentor in this space under uh, Roland Frazier. But I had him on the show and I was like, you know, I'm really frustrated with all these business owners bringing, you know, just horrible books to me. Mm-hmm. And he just shook his head. He's like, quit, quit getting frustrated about it and quit turning those deals away. How do you expect, you know, a business owner who's never been taught accounting to have what you expect? They've never seen a profit or loss or a balance state or anything until you ask for one. And then quite literally, they go out and, you know, you know download the cl- closest templates they can find and try to fill it in. You know, like you said, their accounting's done for uh, you know, tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I revisited that concept and now I look for great businesses and, uh, you know, I'm not looking for, you know, financial issues. Uh, but if, if their stuff's not in order, you know, who do I pair them up with to make sure it can get in order or I can have a team put it into order once we have it is kind of one of the, the gaps I'm looking to fill now. So um, what is the process you go through when you have a business owner and they, you know, First generation, second generation. I've seen a third generation business with 63 mm-hmm. years of business hand me stuff financially. And I'm like, oh, my God. Now, <laughs> now I think they had some serious issues. I think somebody might have been embezzling in that company. But uh, there was there was just money missing, millions. And um, they didn't know where it went. So, And they couldn't have the accounting to show it to me. It's funny. As a matter of fact, my offer to that company was, look, I'll give you a dollar down. We'll take over all your debt. And in 45 days, if I find something so wrong that I just can't deal with it, I get to give it back to you. And they didn't balk at the offer at all. They bought, they, they threw a fit about me wanting to give it back to them in 45 days if I found something <laughs> wrong. Right. And uh, luckily for me and, and probably luckily for them, um, they had some issues with during the due diligence that didn't allow the transfer. They owed money to individuals that would not allow me to take over the debt. Mm. Uh, Three lettered agencies, put it that way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, how do we, how do you go about that? How, I mean, you've got a company, it looks like it's running well and you see their messed up books and you kind of, you, you step back and go, it's not malicious. It's not inten- inten- intentional. They're not trying to hide anything from me, especially if they're not through a broker or anything. Right. right. Nobody's trying to make this work. They just handed you what they, they thought you asked for with no preconceived notion of this is how it's always done. And they're just, I honestly think unless if they're under, say four or $5 million a year in revenue, they really can't afford a CFO. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, how do you, how do you go through that process? What's the way to, you know, take a business owner, take what they've got and make it work. I, I mean, a lot of times it starts with a total rebuild, right? We'll go back and say, okay, let's, you know, 2020 is probably too far water under the bridge, right? But maybe we'll do 2021 and then this year to date. So we got, we have some good history, right? We can do month over month comparison, year over year comparisons with last year, if we do last year and then we'll do this year. But a lot of times it's really a start from scratch. I'm going to throw out whatever accounting you have. I'm going to set up a new set of books. I'm going to get your bank statements, your credit card statements, you know, your merchant account statements, whatever else, and rebuild this thing. And hopefully it looks at least, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they have a good seat of the pants feel, right? They know their business. They live it every day. I know basically what my margin is on these products. I know basically what my expenses are. I know basically how much cash I need for things, but they don't have it in black and white. They don't have it in hard data that's supported by the supporting documents and statements. So that's what we do. Once in a while though, people, 
man, my business is fantastic. I'm making money hand over fist. And I go, really? I don't, I don't see it, but okay, let's rebuild the books. And then you have to break the harsh truth to them, right? You're not doing nearly as well as you thought. Uh, you might want to scale back some of those big plans you had until you get things better off. Or sometimes the opposite happens. You know, people are real careful and they're always putting money in the savings account. I'm just not sure, you know, and then you come to tell them, hey, you're making 40% net profit here. You can probably unclench a little bit. <laughs> you can probably, you know, invest a little in more ad spend or whatever and kind of grow things. You're, you're doing pretty well. Um, but the fact that they don't know either way is that's the scary part. And, and to me, you know, I love business and I love the creative side of it and the ideas and the expansion and brand ideas and logos and whatever. But I also, I am all about the data, right? I want to know how I am doing. Where am I spending money? Where is it coming in? Where is it going out? And then I want to benchmark that and see, can I beat this? Can this month beat last month? And this month, this year beat last month, you know, the same month last year. And I, I love those numbers. I want to see where I'm at. And when you're not looking at any of that stuff, you're really just winging it. And chances are you're underperforming what you could be if you were just keeping track of it. I get that. So you, you've got you've got clients, they come in, you go, you rebuild their books and stuff. Do you still own the business brokerage? Do you have, help them exit now or what do you? We, uh, we don't, I, I still do a lot of consulting, just sort of free. Look, if you're thinking about selling six months from now, here's what you want to do between now and six months, get things, you know, I'll give them that kind of advice. We don't do commission-based brokering anymore though. We have a lot of partner firms that we work with who take that piece and they send us their stuff, right? Somebody comes in their door and says, Hey, I think I'm getting ready to sell. And they'll go same thing. All right, let's look at your finances. Oh, you know what? Call Matt, <laughs> please, please call Matt. Let him do his thing and then come back to us in a month and then we can sell it. Cause if I take you to market with this, you're, you're leaving so much money on the table. And that might be most, my new phrase. Call Matt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, we work with a lot of brokerage firms that, you know, it's exactly to your point, right? Somebody is interested in selling and they can't work with them. They, you know, I can't represent this. I, I will lose out on commission. You will lose out on equity. This doesn't make any sense if we take it to market like this, either the numbers just don't work as, as they are, or, it's okay, but what's going to happen is you're going to go and do diligence and they're going to tear you to shreds and they're going to revise their LOI down by a, by a big amount with all the crap that they find. And even if materially at the end of the day, your business is still solid, just for the fact that your stuff is such a mess, they're going to revise their offer down. So our goal when, when we take on a project for a client we know is, is thinking about selling or is in the process of selling, I always tell them we have two goals. Goal one is we want to get you the highest possible valuation we can justify with the numbers from your business, right? By redoing it, recasting it, you know, reducing that, showing the ad backs, unwinding all the commingling and other junk you've thrown in there, right? We want to get you the highest and best valuation. And then part two of that as critical or even more critical is it has to survive due diligence, right? There's no point in going to market with something that looks like a good number if you can't support that and it just gets torn apart anyway, now you look even worse. Now people go, well, here's all the stuff I found that you didn't tell me about. What didn't I find that I'm really nervous about? Right? So you, you have to have good numbers and then they have to survive that process in order to have a successful exit. And from the buyer side, we have to, right? If, if I get a mess handed to me and it looks like you're a decent business, I'm unaware of the level of work it's going to be required to 
maintain it, grow it, and, and a capital, right? If you can't show me your capital management, how you manage cash in and cash out, your balance statement, profits, and all that stuff, then I have to assume I better set aside some money to to, to put into this right. until we have all until I have a clear picture of what now. That wouldn't stop me at this point from you know wanting to put an offer on something, but it would certainly lower what that offer would be because you know. I, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm risk adverse to some extent, but I'm also not stupid. Right. <laughs> and most buyers are going to be that way. It's like, okay, I don't know what I've got my hands on here. I love the widget. I love what they're making and it looks profitable, but they can't show me concrete evidence of it. And in due diligence, I look at your last three years of profit and loss statements, which you don't have. So I don't have, or your last three years of bank statements. I see all the commingling mm-hmm. and, you know, it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort to, to put together a picture of what what I have in front of me. So Absolutely. I mean, what sellers need to understand is the way a buyer mitigates their risk is by reducing the offer, right? I don't know how well this is going to do, so I can only pay you a limited amount. If you came to me with clean books and clear evidence that this business was profitable at this level consistently and growing over time and had cash management under control... I'm happy to pay a higher price because I have much more confidence that I'll get the same results when I take over ownership. But to the extent that I don't have a clear picture of that and faith in what you're telling me, I'm going to mitigate that risk by either walking away or reducing my offer to a a level where I feel like, okay, at this price, I can take that risk on. And if I discover problems, I will still have paid a fair price. But you know, the, again, the sellers are leaving money on the table. If they could have shown good results and just didn't, it's crazy to me. <laughs> you know, up until that uh, interview with one of the other podcast guests, I would I was just walking away from them. Just mm-hmm. I, I'm not an accountant, and uh, you know, I have to bring in accountants to keep my own business afloat and out of you know being in a mess. Uh, so I, I don't want to straighten out yours. Is the mindset I had. Now he's I, I'm looking at it differently now. It's interesting. If you look at certain industries, like you mentioned restaurant, you're talking about cleanse factor, you're into restaurant. I'm like, eh. I obviously have this, maybe it's a mis- misconceived notion that restaurants are historically hard to manage and very low profit. Uh, my wife has a, gr- a degree in hospitality ma- uh, management. And I remember her going through that and her, watching her study and reading some of the stuff she was working on. And it's like the average restaurant has a profit margin of 3%. I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's not much room for error there. Right. So I've got this knee jerk reaction when I hear restaurants, but there's a lot of industries like that where it's very competitive. It's a very lean industry. And if your books aren't clean, you're not going to get a great offer because of that. They're worried about like, there's not much room to, to, to play here. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I am a strong advocate whenever somebody comes to me and says, I'm thinking about buying a business. My advice is always learn as, first of all, pick a kind of business, right? Because sometimes, well, today I looked at a truck stop and tomorrow I'm looking at a restaurant and the day after that I'm looking at a software business. Like you can't, you can't know the ins and outs of each of those, right? So pick one of those, get to know it really well. And then when you start looking at opportunities, you'll immediately able to be spot. This one's good. This one's so-so. And that one, I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. But to your point about restaurants, right, that is one there are some super high performers. I mean, literally just cash machine restaurants. And then there's some that are good and, you know, sort of the franchise model where you can have multiple locations and build a really good business out of that. And then there's a lot that are garbage and you have to be able to tell which is which. 
and not be suckered into the one that you thought was pretty good. And restaurants are notorious for their financials being iffy. And that, that 3% profit margin, that comes from IRS data. And why do restaurants perform so poorly as far as the IRS knows? Because there's a cash component, right? So yeah, you look at that, you know, why would anybody ever open a restaurant? <laughs> well, yeah. that's the average. A lot of them report losses year after year, which are on paper, their losses in reality. Oh, well, that's funny though. The guy hasn't made money in 20 years yet. He's got a new Mercedes every two years. How does that work? <laughs> it's interesting because I've always heard that like, uh, I think it's pizza restaurants and sub sandwiches. Sandwich shops have the highest profit margin. If you can add a bar in there somehow, like if you could have a pizza restaurant with a bar, you, you're doing okay. It's yeah. the labor cost uh, and the, 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 I guess the variety of food cost that uh that drive an in, uh, issue um so we, we just dispelled one of the myths that you know that i have what other myths that are around your profession that you think are kind of out there that you you really think should be debunked well i mean i think again i mean one of the one of the things i see a lot with people who are looking to get into the you know i, I like i feel like the fastest path to entrepreneurship is to buy a business so i want to buy a business but they they focus too much on that cash flow number or the SDE number that brokers present, and they're not thinking through what really they can be successful with, right? And, and I, I see it all the time. You know, somebody who's been a, an HR manager for 20 years, right? Now they want to own a restaurant. Have you ever owned a restaurant? No, but I like good food. Well, if you know, ah, that's not a good criteria for getting in the business. Do you understand? Restaurants are seven day a week operations. Right. And if you're going to be an owner operator, you're looking at 80 hour a week, you know, until you get up and running and big enough to afford management. So I think people kind of focus on that bottom line number without thinking about the kind of industry they're in. Is it a good fit for me? Am I you know, we get introverts all the time looking at businesses that require a, a heavy sales component. Right. Look, you're going to buy the guy you're buying it from is the is the guy that's out shaking hands, kissing babies, knows everybody in town. You know, everybody loves to do business with him. He has a backyard barbecue once a month and you like to sit in your office and play on the computer. You're not going to be able to take that business over and get the same results. Yes, his numbers are good. His books are fantastic. His results are accurate. But think more about am I a good fit for this business, right? Maybe you're a better fit for a software business where you can sit in an office and program and run ad, you know, Google ads. You never have to talk to a single person. You can still have a seven figure business. But I think a lot of people that get into the, I want to buy a business game, focus on the money, right? Okay, well, I make 150K a year. So I got to buy something that after debt service can still pay me 150K a year. And that they're looking at that number and ignoring all the other factors that go into that being a successful business. You know, I'll play the devil's advocate on this. I'll say that if you want to buy a business and you don't know the industry, you need to buy a bigger one. And what I mean by that is I, I don't know the first thing about, you know, running a large scale marketing agency. So when we were doing a roll up last year, you know, we were looking for our marketing agencies, 10 or more employees, been in our business for 10 or more years. You know, there were people there to run it. You know, and that's kind of the criteria I have now, unless I know it, which is basically IT and real estate. You know, uh, if I if I don't know the industry, I'm not expecting to come in here and learn how to uh, make something on a machine in a machine shop right away. Right. But if you got a machine shop with 20 people and a decent general manager that can run things when you're not there, I'm interested because I can hire a CEO or a general manager if you're doing the right numbers. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's the difference between going in as an owner operator and going in as more of a, an investor, right? right? And it's two separate businesses and it's two different sizes, scales of business. Um, you know, I think it's still, there's, there's a certain amount of, you want to investigate, right? If there's 20 people, but there's like two key employees. And if you lost either one of those, it would be hard, you know, then the other 18 are going, well, I don't know what to do now. You know, like Joe, <laughs> Joe left. I don't, I don't know what to do. So, you, you know, you want to mitigate that risk and make sure you understand who the key players are and if one or the other was to leave or, you know, how easy are they to replace and whatever. But yes, I get what, I mean, you know, some people are looking to buy a business to replace income and that's going to become their full-time job. And then boy, you better know how to replace that owner who's doing the 40 hours a week that you're going to now have to do. Or you look at a bigger business where there's a team in place and your role is going to be management and, you know, str strategy and direction and growth opportunities and things like that. So again, just knowing what you're what you're buying and not just, oh, this one makes 500K. I'd like to buy 500K worth of cash flow. That's a little harder than that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times people don't understand that that owner is wearing four hats. He's working 120 hours a week and you're not going to do that. Yep. And when you go to replace him, it's not an add in of like, you know, you need $150,000 a year salary. So, you know, you know, a CEO in that position makes 150. Now you got to have the CEO and you got to have the sales rep. And you know, uh, I have two good examples of what we were just talking about. One was a machine shop, like I was just saying, and the owner was the sales rep and the owner was the CEO. The owner did most of the accounting and HR. Like he had 40 something people out in the shop or maybe it's 30 something. It's been a while. But the uh, the two things that got me the most was, is like if one of the big machines broke before he called out to service maintenance, he went out there. And a lot of times he could fix it himself. He's been doing this for 40 something years. Right. And I'm like, I'm not an electrician. I wouldn't open the panel, you know, you know, and I've got more education in that space than most people. Right. I have a computer and electronics degree from way back in the nineties, but, uh, you know, probably got more experience than most, but I still wouldn't open the panel and try to rewire something. And this guy does that, does that type of stuff. So now he needs a maintenance guy, a sales guy, a general manager and a CEO. And, uh, and he, and he's paying himself 80 K a year. <laughs> he's right. comfortable with that. It's just, right. it's not a replacement. And the other example I had, you were talking about like, you know, if the owner leaves or one of the key players left, I found this beautiful little engineering company. Thought it was like, okay, books were great. One of the, there was four or three or four, one of them's gone now. There was originally four partners, friends, college buddies that started this years ago. They've all went together. The CEO, you know, reaches out to me. We start going down the due diligence. Books were beautiful. One of the one of the four happened to have a CPA, right? You know, and he did CPA work for other businesses on the side. But their books were beautiful. But I found out that like he's seventy two, and they're all about the same age. And I said, well, what is going to happen when the other three guys, you know, when once you sell this and, re and retire? And uh, I, oh, I don't know. I haven't asked them. So I get on the phone with two of the two of the other guys, and they're like, oh, we're just hanging around until he's he's retired. It's out of loyalty. We're still here. We want, we've been trying to get him to retire for a while now. So I'm like, I'm going to lose the entire executive staff, you know, and I don't know the first thing about engineering. It's like a structural engineering of like bridges and like all kinds, like, you know, big engineering projects right. and nice firm. But uh, I was like, I told him, I said, you need, I, I, you can't sell this right now. It's whoever you sell it to better already own an engineering firm because all the rest of us can't have the top four guys walking out of your company. Right. So uh, yeah, I get that. Let's go back to the uh, like bookkeeping and, you know, what do you see? Now I know kind of what I'm looking for and I know what a lot of other buyers kind of, you know, um, ask for, but when you sit down with a business owner, what do you help them prepare first? 
Well, I mean, the basis of everything, right, is the financial statements. We've got to have an accurate P&L that reflects the correct top line revenue, the cost of goods sold, the expenses. And, you know, depending on how the business runs, generally it'll be on a cruel basis. Sometimes some businesses operate fine on cash basis, but those numbers have to be accurate and they have to be, you know, month by month. We don't just sometimes you some people still go to their CPA, right? And the CPA just throws together a year end summary. Well, great. You made a million dollars this year, but it makes a big difference to me. Was that $80,000 a month or was that 10 months of nothing? And then you sell Christmas trees, right? And it's, <laughs> and you make all million dollars in four or five weeks and then it's back to zero. That's a huge, important question, right? So me seeing just a summary number for the year is no help. Or what if in January last year, you were at 150K a year or a month, and now you're at $50,000 a month because the business is going off a cliff. Telling me you made a million dollars this year, that alone doesn't help, right? So we want to get it lined up by month. Hopefully what we're seeing is revenue is growing. Hopefully what we're seeing is cost of goods sold and other inputs as a percent of revenue is staying fairly flat, right? You're not, revenue is not going up by, you know, 50%, but costs are going up by 100% or something and, and profits going down. So getting that together, seeing what that picture looks like is kind of step one. Then we'll talk to them about, look, do you, because a lot of entrepreneurs are on more than one business and they have costs commingled in there, right? Well, this is my marketing guy. He helps with this business, but he also helps me with two other businesses. All right, well, we need to allocate that or pull that out, right? We don't want to have all this commingled stuff in here. Oh, I've got, you know, deposits from my other business. Sometimes they hit here when I'm low on cash. Uh, look, what you're selling, you want to have it nicely walled off so that when I present it, I'm only talking about this. And I'm not saying, well, ignore that and don't look at this and these deposits don't count. Buyers immediately go, whoa, whoa, okay, that's messy. And how do I know? You're telling me, you know, don't worry about these expenses, but I see them. How do I know what you've done with it? So step one is, you know, clean books. And step two is also structurally sort of cleaning the business up so that whatever part you're selling is the only part that we're presenting here. And then just gathering everything else, right? They're going to want to see tax returns, so you might as well get them now. They're going to want to see bank statements, credit card statements, sales tax reports. You know, let's get all that stuff in a nice, neat package so that when that due diligence request list comes in, you just go, here's a link to the folder. It's all in there. Let me know if there's anything else you don't see that you want. And they go, wow, oh, you're so organized and on top of it. That's what you want to convey, not you need what? Oh, God, I think it's in a filing drawer. You know, it's in a storage unit. <laughs> I got to I got to ask my CPA for it because I don't know where that is. You want to present the image of clean and ready to go. I tell you, I've uh, in the last two years, I've looked at about, I want to say probably 280, 300 deals. Uh, the big roll up, we looked at over 200 marketing agencies. I've seen a prepared deal room three times, maybe four, four times, meaning the deal room is that folder. The folder has all the like everything I'd ask for. It's in there, right? The checklist, like. That guy was prepared. It was a marketing agency and he was brilliant, brilliantly prepared because there was a little video in there where they like showed the culture and different key employees that knew the place was, you know, they would might they might sell is the way he presented it. They kind of introduced you to the culture. It was really done well. So all you know, there was extra stuff in there. It was a marketing agency. But uh the books were in there, the just and it was up to date. I think that's a great way. And I think um what's the guy uh John Warlow wrote a book on uh, on exiting. I'm totally drawing a blank here, but 
he teaches that like you keep, you run it as if it's for sale. That deal room thing should be there ready to go at all times. I think that's a great uh, mindset to have is that, you know, and uh, I've talked to my partners and stuff. That's what we're working towards is when, when, when we do our next acquisition from day one, there's a deal room folder that the, everybody just updates. We may not sell it for three to five years, but at any given time, somebody comes up to us and goes, Hey, we'd like kind of like little business. Cool. Sign this NDA, sign the right. NDA. Say, okay, here's a Dropbox link to a secured folder that says like everything you would want to see about this business is there. Maybe do it in stages. Here's what you need to get interested. Right? right. And then if you're still interested, let's have a talk and I'll give you access to the next folder. Um, but I think it's brilliant to keep that stuff up to date and, you know, run it as if you're selling it. Now I get it. If that, that's the space I'm in, I'm buying and selling. If you're just going to run a business, you plan on holding it for, for, for 15 years, the taxes are going to be different because you're kind of trying to minim minimize your tax impact. Um, I come from the real estate space. I've seen many a times where that effort to minimize their tax impact really minimize what kind of house they buy. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> right? So the, when you go to buy a house, you know, the, the, the bank's going to want to see those same statements and they want to see that you have the cash flow to pay a mortgage payment. And if you've been minimizing it for the last two or three years, so uh, there's more than one reason to have your books just really in order. Uh, I, uh, one, it's easier to run a business, I think, personally. And two, whenever you want to use any type of debt structure financing or anything else like that, it's critical inside of there. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's, you know, if you think about the same sort of example from the real estate world, right, what happens when somebody decides they're going to sell their house? They run around and they got to fix the paint and fix that broken door and the window that doesn't open and the big water spot on the ceiling that we never got around to. And right, you'd go around and try to fix everything. And then you think, well, gosh, now the house looks pretty good. Why are we selling again? <laughs> like, why didn't we do that all along? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, that big pile of crap in the side yard, we got to haul that out. And, you know, that's the same thing with the business, right? People go, oh, well, I've got these extra expenses and I pay that guy. I don't probably don't need to. And I have these things I don't really use. I'm paying for and I'm, and, and if I cleaned all that up, my profit would look mo so much better. And, and I'd be, you know, more presentable uh, as a deal. I'm like, well, why don't you do that anyway? Right. Why <laughs> clean house anyway and always just run things as optimized as possible. And then anytime somebody walks through the door and says, hey, I like what you've got here. Would you consider an offer? You can say. Well, I'd be happy to talk, right? Instead of, oh my God, I got to clean up and, you know, reorganize everything and get rid of the, you know, just run it that way from the beginning. You'll, you'll be more profitable. You'll have more cash to go around. And should the opportunity present itself unexpectedly, you're ready for it. It's interesting is you'll, it, I think that most business owners will find that it's a lot less stressful to run the business also, but it's everything I get rid of. is like, okay, that's one thing I never have to fix. Cause I was, I, I've been keep saying, oh, I gotta go take this, gotta take that over to this guy, have him weld this, go fix that, you know? So it's the same thing with your business. If you fix it, get it clean. I think a lot of the stress would go away because everything that you own, including a business kind of owns you. And a lot of those undone tasks are just a kind of a state of incompleteness. And um, it's funny is I have a big wood shop out there and I haven't made anything with wood in a long time. And as I'm selling off the tools, there's part of me like, well, I don't want to sell my tools off because I might want to build something. It's like, you haven't been in the shop in six months, guy. <laughs> right? I bought a wood shop or I built a wood shop because I, my, that's what I did with my dad growing up. And I thought it'd be fun. I built some stuff with my kids. But, you know, I don't need a, a, a table saw that has a 12 inch blade on it for cutting, you know, planks of wood. But I got one, 220 right. volt one, right? <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, it's just one of those, like I said, everything you own owns you and all this stuff you leave undone inside your business, your booking, your accounting and stuff like that. Um, I don't, you're about the 15th uh, podcast guest that said, you know, it's funny when you clean all this up, you might want to keep it. It's, a, it's the same scenario. Like you, you got a car, you're like, I'm going to go trade my car and you go get it cleaned and detailed and get that last little pop out, that little ding in it popped out and stuff like that. So you can get your best resale uh, trade in value. And then you like get ready to drive it over. You're like, I don't know. This is, this is pretty nice now. And I don't have a payment on anymore. Why would I take on a payment? So <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, I mean, we're all, we're all in the same space. We kind of all see the same things, the same issues come up. Um, so I agree. I mean, I'm all about simplicity, right? Sometimes clients will call, you know, I need help cleaning up the books and I'm like, okay, let's go through. What do you have? Like, well, I have six bank accounts. Six? Well, why? Well, I one for this and one for that. And well, does it help? Does that, is that, well, no, actually I keep paying all these bounce check fees because I forget to transfer money. I'm like, what, you know, I, I run my business with one checking account, right? And we healthy balance and the healthy revenue, but one, that's it, right? Unless there's a good use case for adding a second one, which I haven't heard yet. I don't need a second one. So, you know, you start the same thing. I got 15 credit cards, 15. Well, I wanted to get a points and this and yeah, but what happened? I forget to pay the balance. I got late fees, late fees, late fees all over the place. You know, well, what if you cut it down to two or three? Like, wouldn't that work just, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. So I think there's a there's a natural tendency in life, right, to just accumulate stuff, especially as Americans, right? We're just, we get stuff. We, get, we, we have space, so we get stuff, and it doesn't really help. It does the opposite. It just adds extra work and time and, or, oh, I got to figure that out and think about this thing. So I'm all about keep it simple. Right? If there's not a good reason to add, then don't add. Right? Make sure that the ad makes sense and you're going to get more value out of it than whatever headache it's going to cause you, whether that's opening a bank account or launching another division or opening a second office or whatever it is, right? Make sure that it makes sense and that it pays for itself and it justifies its existence. Otherwise, don't add it. So you've been doing, you've been at this for 21, almost 22 years. You're, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile on my other screen. It says 21 years and eight months. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite deal? Like, if this is story time, like, tell me about the, like, what's the, maybe the craziest one or the best one, or I, I don't know what sticks out in your mind is uh, uh, an entrepreneurial acquisition, the mergers type of deal. Well, I mean, I, I think the ones that are memorable are, are um, you know, the ones that it almost didn't work or that, you know, there was a lot of drama, right? The ones that go smooth, you kind of, okay, great. And you cash a check and you move on. But um, I, I had one deal, I was brokering and it was an urban winery. So basically the, the seller did everything but grow grapes, right? They would buy grapes, but then they would crush them and they would ferment them and they would make different wines. They had white wines and red wines and whatever else. And they decided they were ready to exit the business. And the buyer came along and, you know, we got into the deal and it all went, it all started smoothly. Right. But it's funny how people get hung up on certain things. And especially again, like the closer you get to the exit, uh, sometimes the sellers just, you know, get hung up on stuff. And <laughs> these particular sellers, there was a little sign, you know, behind the tasting room that, you know, said, I don't even remember something about, you know, the uncorking at the end of the day or whatever. Right. It was literally like the kind of sign you could buy at home goods for 10 bucks. And it, this, the buyer made some kind of, you know, offhand comment about, oh, I love the sign. You know, I love when I'm standing here and uh, to talk to and then the sellers go, well, well, the sign's not going with the deal. <laughs> 
wait a minute, what? And it turned into a fight that almost ended the deal over literally a ten dollars. <laughs> and it was just it's just funny how stuff, you know, sellers get very sentimental right before, you know, ah, oh, I grew this thing from nothing and I've had it all these years and I'm not, you know, oh, maybe I don't. And, you know, the buyers are going to start already moving in. Right. Oh, I'm going to change this and change that. And I hate that paint color. And the sellers are I I picked that out with my wife. And you just it's it's funny to me how much deals can get emotional and there's psychology in them where you would think, hey, we're all business owners here, right? It's it's a business deal. It's a business decision. But people get so emotional and so tied up in it that you have to kind of remember that piece too. Remember you're dealing with people. You remember you're dealing with emotions and take that into account on the, on you know the transaction side of it. It's not just the numbers and, oh, the bank approved the loan. What's the problem? Well, the guy wants the sign. <laughs> Gosh. So that's the that's the interesting part to me. And I mean, there's a million stories along those lines. I used to own a real estate investment firm and I've actually turned down a deal for something similar. I um, it was I was when I wanted the place for my personal use. It had a beautiful little orchard on it of semi mature trees. They weren't too huge, but they were already bearing fruit. And if you've ever planted fruit trees, you know that they've been in the ground four or five years before they yeah. do. Right. So I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. And we were talking, I put an offer on the property and we start talking. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to use this one as my own. I'm going to sell my little farm and, and move over into this. Uh, I love the little orchard. He goes, oh, well, wait a second. The orchard not going. I was like, it's part of the land. It's going. I think, no, no, my brother's an arborist. with a tree guy, uh, arborist or something like that. Yeah. He has the equipment to move it. And we bought 25 acres by the lake. We're going we're gonna to move the orchard. They're going to come <laughs> dig these trees up, put them on the semi and take them out of here. I was like, yeah, we're not doing that, right? Yeah. That was just right. And they well, no, we'll fill in the hole. It'll be a beautiful field. I was like, yeah, the, one of the main reasons I wanted was the view. It had a good view. And it already had a mature orchard. I've been spending, you know, I have a little one on my property that I've been planting. And every time I get the cherry trees in the ground, the deers come and eat them, right? I thought, <laughs> this is this is a jump start. But uh, he ended up selling it to somebody else because I like, look, you know, and he was rude about it. And once we got into it, I was like, yeah, I'm not dealing with you. No. So it does happen. There is an emotional side. And I'll be honest. I honestly think that a lot of business owners think that they're selling for the money. But when they get down to it, there's a lot of emotional ties to that building business. And I've interviewed quite a few of them who didn't take the highest and best offer. They took the offer that they felt was the mm -hmm. safest pair of hands for what they created. This isn't yeah. just their business. This is our lifestyle. Like a lot of business owners, I do. I, I did and I got to catch myself on this a lot. I, I identify myself as what I do, an acquisition entrepreneur or an entrepreneur in general. It's part of my identity. When somebody asks you who you are, I don't say Ronald Skelton. I say I'm an entrepreneur. I help buy and sell businesses right. or I buy them for myself. All these business owners, if they've been in that business for 15 years, they've tied their identity to some level, mm -hmm. uh, most likely to it. And, you know, you're not dealing with just the books and the numbers and the, the exchange of assets. You're dealing with human beings with emotions and feelings. Uh, I guess it's kind of the same. Uh, so uh, I can see them get trapped up in there. It, it definitely, and it goes both ways too. I mean, the buyers... Generally speaking, and I can speak from personal experience, having felt the same thing, the closer you get to the deal going through, the more nervous you, you know, I, oh gosh, did I miss something? Am I overlooking some, do I really want to take, like my life right now is pretty good. I'm going to suddenly take on this huge amount of additional responsibilities and I got to get this thing up and running and going or, you know, smooth out. I got to learn all these new things. The buyer, you know, you get kind of that panic attack feeling of, oh my God, maybe I just walk, maybe I just cancel it right i don't know so you you have to take into 
that into account as the seller, as the buyer, as the intermediary, knowing, you know, people are having these thoughts. They're having these concerns. Sometimes the sellers, you know, they get to the point where they start, they get checked out. You know, I'm not going to own this thing in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to worry about fixing that. I'm not going to deal with this guy. That guy's always been a jerk. I'm just going to fire him because, you know, it's not going to be my problem in a week anyway. You know, they start to have that sort of the senioritis, right? They're already one foot out the door and you got to make sure they don't do any damage <laughs> before you take over. And the buyers get really nervous about, wait, maybe this was, you know, in the beginning of the deal, when it's still two, three months off, they're super excited. Oh, I'm going to take over. I'm going to cash flow. I'm going to make all these changes. It's going to be fantastic. But right before the deal, they're like, uh, maybe I don't want to do this. I, did I really think this through? <laughs> so it, it, there's just a lot of psychology in it, along with all the other stuff. You know, it's um, on that psychology side of things and management style. Um, you know, we were looking at one uh, down in Texas and um, kind of an engineering, again, kind of an engineering thing. And the manager, when I started looking at the culture of the business, started asking cultural questions. Um, three of the senior people were in on the conversation because he wanted them to be, they own minority share, like 20, 20%. So he owned like 60 and they had 20 and 20%. So, but he wanted them in on the conversation, which is good for me. I want to talk to all vested parties. And um, when I got him, he, one of the calls, he wasn't on there. I said, well, how does he manage? How, is it, how does it work there? And he's like, well, he manages by screaming, yelling, and kicking things. I was like, what? Are you kidding? And they're like, you know, and I, no, no. When people don't get things done, he literally kicks. There's all the all the trash cans in here have giant dents in it for being kicked across the room. And I just, I, I, I killed the deal right then and there in my head. And later, like on conversations, because I don't manage that way, and I wouldn't want to hire anybody that did. And the other two execs, like, well, everybody here, they're used to that. And if you don't do it, we don't get stuff done. I said, of course, that's true. Absolutely yeah. true. Anybody that would tolerate that needs that to be around. Mm -hmm. I don't tolerate it nor want to be around it. So I'm out, you know, right. um, you know, so culture comes into play there too. Right. Definitely. I mean, it's, you, you want to know how it's run now because ideally it's run well and you want to come in and not rock the boat. Or if it's not run well, it's something you can fix in a positive way. But I 100% agree. If you have to come in and be the kicking, screaming, yelling guy, I don't want to do that. I don't think it's a healthy, productive way to run a business. And the people who stay and put up with that, and that's their, that's how they, I don't want to manage those people either. Because that's, they're going to hire people and they're going to yell. Oh, the boss yells. So maybe that's how we run things here. So I'm not going to yell now. Now, forget all that. <laughs> no, it's just it's like, it, it's got to be a fit in multiple levels. So. So you, again, I'm going to refer to your experience. You've been around this, uh, you know, quite a lot longer than I have, uh, probably close to 10 times longer, right? Cause I've been doing, I've been doing, I've been doing, I've been in business for a long time, but I just started getting into acquisition and mergers a couple of years ago. And, uh, so what would you say are your top three tips, like, uh, to either buying or selling a business? Like what are the top three things that come to mind that we should know? So, I mean, I think if it's from, the um, from a buyer's perspective, again, I think, you know, you want to look at the numbers, right? But you also want to look at the, the, the fit between the buyer and the business and make sure that's a good fit. And then you want to make sure that there's upside opportunity, right? Sometimes, again, I think people think, well, I'll buy this business. It produces, you know, $400,000 of your cash. And I can, I'm happy with 400000 
and that'll be fine for it. But you can't expect that it's going to be status quo, right? You, you should be able to come in and say, I have ideas on how to improve it and how to grow it and how to continue on this trajectory. Because if you're expecting status quo, what you're going to get is falling off, right? So you should have an idea on how to improve it. You should have an idea that it's a good fit for you personally. And then, of course, you should be confident and understand the financials and the numbers and that it's a good business in the economic side of it. And I'll give you an example of where two out of those three had a lot of potential and the buyer fit was a problem. We had a guy who was a, a C-suite executive kind of guy, right? Used to, you know, expensive suits, expensive meals, sitting around a nice mahogany conference table and talking to other executives, right? And he had a fight with some of the other people and just, you know, sort of one of those, the hell with it, I'm out. And he decided, okay, I need to, I'm going to buy a business. I know how to run a business. I'm going to buy a business, replace my income and grow it from there. The business he ended up buying was a moving company. And if you can imagine, right, who works at a moving company? It's, it, it's day labor kind of guys who, you know, recently out of prison, soon to be on their, on their way back to prison. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. It's a different culture. So he comes in with his boardroom management style of, you know, shaking hands and talking about, you know, I would like to give you guys some equity interest and, you know, I really want to grow the team. And these guys are looking at him going, nah, okay, we can walk all over this guy. So, you know, 10 minute breaks turned into hour breaks and, you know, they're using the delivery vans for personal, <laughs> you know, and it just... It was a disaster. And he ended up selling it back to the original seller for half of what he paid for it just to get the hell out of it because he was a terrible fit for that business, right? He should have bought, he would have been a guy that could run a marketing agency or some kind of professional services firm. That that's what he knew. That's the environment he was good for a moving company, you know, working with that crew, it, the business was great. The business did well financially, right? And the business had a lot of opportunity for growth because they were just getting into where they had the, the other guy, the original seller had bought a storage lot. And so they were doing long-term storage in addition to moving, which is just easy money, right? You just park it on the lot and you charge them 500 bucks a month to leave their stuff there. You know, so the business had tremendous opportunity and was really a good performer, but this guy was not the guy and he didn't, wasn't self-aware enough to spot that. And so those are my three tips as a buyer to look at things and make sure you've got to fit across all three. If you get three green checks, great. But if one of them's a big red X, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. So we're getting close to the top of the hour. We've been going about 50 minutes now. Let's make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of you real quick. Uh, this is a chance for you to plug your business. Tell us about CapForge and how they can reach you. Yeah, definitely. So I think, I mean, the best way to get a hold of us is through the website, right? Capforge.com. Um, there's a lot of information on there about what we do. You can send us an email. You can give us a call. I'm always, I'm happy to chat with anybody, whether you're a potential client or you just have some questions or, you know, whatever down the road, who knows? I'm a big believer in karma, right? Try to give back first and then we'll, good things will come to us over time. But one of the, you know, the, the things that we do that are particularly relevant to this conversation, right? We do accounting cleanup. So if you're looking at a potential acquisition and you can't make heads or tails of what they've got, we can go in and do recreate the books. So then you have a very solid understanding of the financial performance of that business. 
or if you're looking at a target and they have some books and you want us to do a due diligence project, we can, again, go in and make sure that everything that you're being presented is accurate or if there's discrepancies, what are they? Are they big discrepancies, like walk away kind of discrepancies? Or are they small ones you can mitigate and, and deal with? And maybe you have to revise the offer a little bit, but at least you know what you're getting into. And then once you've got a deal, you're the new owner, you're running along, you need bookkeeping help, you need tax accounting, consultation help, right? You're probably not, it's not a big enough business to have an in-house person for that or resource for that. So more of an outsource CFO, bookkeeping tax solution, we do that. So any or all of those, we're happy to help with, happy to have the conversation. And that's capforge.com, C-A-P-F-O-R-G-E.com. It'll be in the show notes for you guys listening to the podcast. It's on the screen if you're watching the video. And uh, I want to uh, make sure everybody has that. The one thing we always like to wrap up the show with is what can myself or the audience do for you? Really, if you know anybody who owns a business and has some bookkeeping that's not up to speed, <laughs> tell them to give me a call. I, I'd be happy to talk to them. We don't, we're not a fit for everybody. I'll be the first person to tell somebody, hey, you know what? Your specific needs, you'd be better off with X, Y, or Z. It's not us. But there are a lot of firms that we can help so that you have those books that are accurate, they're updated, they're timely. Every month you can use them to make good management decisions. And should you decide to sell, you're ready to go. You don't have to do a big cleanup project or worry that you're leaving money on the table. Um, so if you know somebody who's a small business owner, medium business owner who could use that kind of help, I you know would love to be able to have that conversation with whoever that is. Awesome. Thank you, Matt, for being on the show today. Hang out for a few minutes afterwards and we're going to wrap this up. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Awesome. <laughs> And that's the show, guys. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind